Yeah. Welcome, everybody, to another East CareerCast. I am your host, Stefan Leichter, a trauma surgeon at VCU in Richmond, Virginia, and I am very excited to have two speakers today. Lazlo Kirali is a professor of surgery and trauma surgeon at the Oregon Health and Science University, and he will interview Dr. Albert Chi, an associate professor and also trauma surgeon at OHSU and also an accomplished biomechanical engineer that is helping those that have lost limbs due to trauma and helps them with amputations and amazing technology. Very excited about this interview. Welcome, everybody. Uh, thank you, Stefan. This is uh, Laszlo Karai, and I'm, um, what we want to talk about today is a little bit about engineering and engineering research in the setting of a surgical career, uh, which I think is becoming, unfortunately, somewhat more of a rare path. And uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Albert Chi. Um, he received his undergraduate degree in Arizona, and then he completed his master's degree in biomedical engineering at Arizona, and then finally completed his um, MD at Arizona as well. He did his residency in Tucson, and then completed his fellowship at the Baltimore Shock Trauma, and then he joined the faculty at Johns Hopkins in 2010 before finally moving to the Oregon Health and Science University at the Division of Trauma, Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery in 2016. Um, he has an interest in biomedical engineering throughout his career, and I think he's done some mind-blowing work in advanced bionic prosthetics. Um, he was even featured in a TED Talk last year. And I have to say, uh, Albert uh, moved here in 2016. He's a fantastic partner, but he's a greater friend. And uh, just like, for example, this week, I, uh, I was definitely ill, and Albert just stepped up and covered my trauma call, which I very much appreciate. Uh, but uh, what we want to get to is talk about uh, his latest advances. Um, he's most well-known for leading a team that developed an extraordinarily bionic prosthetic. And uh, for those of you unfamiliar with his work, maybe on your own words, Albert, uh, can you tell us about this upper extremity prosthetic that's been one of your career highlights? Yeah, for sure. I uh, came to OHSU uh, recruited to start something called a Targeted Muscle Reinnervation Program. And what it is, it's a unique surgical procedure that takes the nerve endings from a person who has had an amputation, and we reroute them to redundant residual muscles that are still present. So essentially, we reroute the nervous nerve endings that have all the neuronal information that has information of the missing limb and reroute them to muscles that are still present. And what that means is we can actually control advanced prosthetics simply by thinking of those intuitive movements. And uh, and you have a patient that you've developed a, a pretty deep connection with that had one of the original uh, one of your original uh, bionic prosthetics. Is that right? That's right. Johnny Matheny, who was my first TMR patient and Hopkins' first TMR patient, uh, he really is a pioneer in so many ways. Um, not only was he the first person to have this procedure done at Hopkins, but he was also the first person to be able to take the world's most advanced prosthetic limb system, the modular prosthetic limb system, home for long-term use. All right. And he still has that? You know, the sure. study has ended. He does have a take-home advanced prosthetic device um, that's commercially available. We're actually developing a 3D-printed advanced prosthetic device for him um, currently, and hopefully it will be done within the beginning of the year. But uh, the fun thing is with that MPL that he took home, which is the modular prosthetic limb, he really took things to a whole other level. Um, he was practicing individual finger control, and there's some videos out there, too, that Johnny actually during that year learned to play the piano. That's incredible. Um, 
And, uh, and what I want to get to a little bit is how this all started. And so uh, you not only received your undergraduate degree in biomedical engineering, you also pursued and caught a master's degree in, in uh, biomedical engineering. Uh, and then what was your first influence into this field? You know, I gotta tell you, I've always tell people I have the best job in the entire world. I get to combine both my passions of engineering and surgery, and the way it got here, I mean, it wasn't a total straightforward path. I mean, I come from a, a background of um, two mathematicians. My father has a PhD in math. My mom has our master's in math, and um, first-generation immigrants, and um, they always really pushed math and engineering. And uh, for me, it was really kind of their influence that pushed me down the engineering route. But I always had this personal drive and really interested in the medical field as, as well. And while I was an undergrad, biomedical engineering seemed to be the perfect fit. That's, uh, so that, that's interesting. Was there one, because um, I did theoretical mathematics, but uh, that means I don't really do, develop anything constructive or uh, executable. So there's a difference there. But was there a person that really kind of, like set this in motion early on, even even before medical school? Oh, before medical school. You know, really, it, it was one mentor in particular. Um, it was Andy Schwartz, who was at the University of Pittsburgh now. And he was taking time between the Neuroscience Institute in San Diego and traveling back and forth between Arizona State, where our, I was getting my master's. And I was the first graduate student that he took in his lab. And Andy was looking at brain control with prosthetics and looking at how the motor cortex specific for hand movement responded when you did move in three-dimensional space. And really, I mean, it was Andy that opened my eyes to this connection of biology and neuroscience and the connection with engineering. And it was within that lab. And I mean, Andy's work is incredible that, um, you know, I, I've worked hard for him, ended up going to medical school, medical school, but things come full circle, circle when I ended up on the East Coast and then reaching out to the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab before I took my position. Andy was actually working with the DARPA Revolutionizing Prosthetics Program and actually used a lot of the things that we were working on in the lab when I was a graduate student. Fast forward 12 years and um, applying that to human beings, um, looking at um, this as a method to help people with neurodegenerative diseases control prosthetics by using their minds simply by thinking about it. And, uh, and so for, um, for a lot of our younger surgeons out there, um, I think it is kind of rare for now for biomedical engineer students that go into medical school to really utilize their degree. Uh, did you find, uh, did you do anything during residency and fellowship to kind of push this project along? Because what's incredible is if you look at it, you first had these kind of inclinations over 20 years ago, and you've maintained that for, you know, two decades. Yeah, I mean... To throw it from my side, just guys, and you obviously are much smarter just hearing about your math experience. I, I kind of feel like I shouldn't even be on that interview. <laughs> but um, I was wondering, how did you realize or decide that general surgery and then also trauma surgery is the way to go? I'm thinking different routes. I mean, there's orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, I guess. You could even think PM&R, uh, looking at the, your patient population. What got you on track to combine that with a trauma fellowship? I got to tell you, it's really just the right place, right time with incredible mentors that I've had. I've had incredible engineering mentors and then incredible surgical mentors. You know, when I was in Arizona, you know, Peter Ree, who was uh, a naval surgeon who was our uh, division chief at the time, he really influenced me to go into trauma, and not only trauma, um, the military as well. It was Peter's influence that 
why I chose uh, when I joined the reserves, I, I chose the naval branch. And then from there, really using that engineering background and the whole motivation is really bringing advanced technologies to help people with traumatic injuries. And not only traumatic injuries, but our wounded warriors returning home who have lost, basically um, have given limb um, to protect our freedoms. And, and really it was that kind of motivation that um, is the basis of the drive for surgery and engineering for me. Great. And um, and so you kind of have these influences from your mentors, uh, but a lot of times you really don't have the resources or the time to really kind of execute some of your thoughts until you become faculty, uh, just because your schedule is somewhat dictated during residency and fellowship. Um, the question I have is um, when you first started working on this kind of pro this problem or, you know, this work, um, what was uh, what was what went easily and what was more difficult in terms of because this is a novel program you're trying to get off the ground as a as a young faculty member? Yeah, um, I have to tell you, um, one of the most challenging parts is that we have this incredible procedure that we can provide for patients that can really change their lives as far as the prosthetics. the The hard part really has been. Even though we can do the procedure, we have a lot of challenges getting the devices covered and having um, everything set up ahead of time. We can perform the surgery. We can have all the therapy and rehab training to have the patients be successful. But then ultimately, the either out-of-pocket costs for the advanced prosthetics were prohibitive or they weren't even covered at all. It was a huge challenge for us. And I'm really proud to say that, you know, it's been an uphill battle, but our first OHSU team, our patient, the first commercially um, insurance pay for the DECA arm, which was another parallel arm that was uh, developed out of the um, DARPA RP program that's commercially available. And then since that time, I've had another patient have it uh, paid for by insurance as well. But it, it is frustrating. Um, it's a battle that we're fighting all the time, but I do feel like it's getting better. Great. And then uh, it sounds like your your mentor you got, were able to reconnect with on the East Coast, and so that was kind of fortuitous. Right? You know, really, it's just been not burning any bridges and maintaining all those relationships that brought me to where I am. I mean, if it wasn't for my master's degree, I don't know if I would have gotten got into medical school with that background and you know, bringing that diversity to my medical class. And then I did, throughout medical school and residency, kept in contact with those mentors and you know, going out to the East Coast, um, there was always this hope of reconnecting both passions, and it was just kind of being at the right place, right time, and knowing the right people. Yeah. Is there any lesson you learned that maybe you would have done a little differently at that start of your career? Uh, you know, there's been so much uh, media kind of involved yeah. and excitement. You know, there's been, you know, interest in 60 Minutes and Sony and all these different things that sometimes the media can kind of distract from the science itself. That, um, but at the same time, I mean, it does have its benefit getting exposure, maybe even identifying philanthropic and foundation donations and things that um, at, at times maybe um, spend more time on the science than to get kind of pulled away and attracted to kind of the, the glitz and glam. And with this specific, um, you know, specific air, uh, projects, don't you, do you find it maybe a little more difficult to put this in, say, an NIH grant? Format. Oh, for sure. And, and, you know, it's part of what I was saying, like, you know, 
focusing on the science and everything, too, that sometimes it has been difficult. The getting funding and um, the support to continue a lot of this great work. You know, the devices are very expensive. Um, the studies are very expensive. And um, sometimes it's so advanced that um, oftentimes when we apply, people don't even understand what the, what we're really trying to accomplish. And um, I, I could tell on, on some of the grant uh, reviewer comments and things that um, there was just it's probably partially my fault, but part of it really is um, it's so advanced. I don't think people understand the full grasp of everything. Yeah, and so I think maybe be, being more facile with media interviews and 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 kind of leveraging that may be more important in like a field where you're not doing n equals one thousand right. studies. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and uh, and what I was hoping to do is maybe move on to some of the more specifics of your research and development. Um, and you had to bring a lot of pieces from a lot of different specialties. And I think this is something that's no doubt truly multidisciplinary. Um, and it's you're taking specialties, you know, everything from rehab to orthopedics to the therapies to surgery um, to computer programming. And putting them all together, and I think that's that's a that's a challenging project on pulling them together to work on something that hasn't been done a whole lot before. Um, and so, can you tell me a little bit about the surgery itself of, of the targeted muscle renovation? Uh, and so that's kind of a skill set you had to develop, um, and maybe you can kind of describe. How do you even learn how to perform that operation? Sure. I have to tell you, again, so much of it has to be in the right, choosing the right position and where you start off. And Julie Preischlank, who is the, uh, our chairman at the time of, at the Department of Surgery, I told her I had this idea. I wanted to, already as a full-time faculty, to start this TMR program. And again, back um, when I, we first started this, it was a relatively new procedure. And... She was very, very supportive, and I reached out to Todd Kiken, who had invented the procedure at Northwestern, and they invited me out. And I flew out a few times to observe the procedure, then approached our um, – I decided to partner with plastic surgery at Hopkins. And uh, Rick Redette, who um, is also another incredible mentor and um, person that I look up to, was willing to perform this procedure with me. And uh, there was a lot of time within the cadaver lab, kind of researching, performing the technique, observing the technique on, they've only did it on a handful of people. And um, finally, just having that support to say, hey, we're going to try it. And honestly, as much prep as we went into the, of all the things that we mentioned about with the therapist and the training, the surgical procedure actually is the smallest kind of time-consuming portion mm -hmm. of the whole thing. The, the nerve transfer surgery, I'm really, it isn't that difficult. Um, any, you know, plastic surgeon, hand surgeon um, do these nerve transfers all the time. It's really that thinking out of the box of being able to transfer nerve endings that have this, the information that, trans, that has information of the missing limb and transferring to mu residual muscles that are still there. Did you have any barriers? You know, sometimes we work in silos and people are very territorial, you know, about, you know, what's this trauma surgeon doing trying to transfer nerves that's in yeah. my wheelhouse? Was there any of that? You know, my motto has always been just be an open book and uh, share it and not be that protective individual. Um, the great thing that even though maybe I didn't have the classical training for um, plastic surgery or, you know, hand surgery, we brought the engineering aspect. And it really did take someone to bridge all of those different specialties together to really have the program be successful. And right now at OHSU, if uh, there's a traumatic amputation or something like that, 
one of the things I do is I call Dr. Chi and I say, um, you know, what can we do for this patient? And now we're actually doing some of these operations at the index amputation. Is that right? I mean, it's it's a really exciting time for us at OHSU. You know, we've gotten together with the orthopedic surgeons within the trauma division and. Um, TMR not only helps you have advanced control for advanced prosthetics, it's been shown um, superior to any kind of uh, virtual therapy or rehab therapy or even medication therapy to prevent phantom limb pain and aroma pain. So it's actually now our standard of care for all the trauma patients that come in. We do recommend a TMR for them on the same admission or even at time of amputation. Yeah, and then just as a side, you know, one of the things I've noticed is we have these patients, and it's one of the it's a it's a it's a terribly traumatic event to lose an extremity, but I think just talking to Albert, um, some of these patients kind of see what's possible in the future, and that's a big step in the right direction. I really, I think that makes a big difference, even just kind of hearing about what will be possible in the future. Another fun thing that is coming out of OHSU and the lab right now is um, how we mentioned earlier that struggle of having prosthetics reimbursed and that kind of... Um, hurdle for patients of being even be able to pay the copay and out-of-pocket costs. We're actually developing 3D printed prosthetics here in my lab. And we are using the same type of advanced control, everything we've learned from the studies we've done with the modular prosthetic limb, and apply that to 3D printing, developing our own advanced limb that is very affordable and accessible to anyone. Right. You know, on that line, you tell the story about the, the young man that came in and you gave them a 3D um, printed extremity. Yeah. I thought that was extraordinary. You know, a lot of the 3D printing, so I almost consider it disruptive technology. Um, the application of 3D printing to prosthetics um, really came out of the need for the lack of accessibility for children. Because you can imagine these devices are so expensive. Children are growing so rapidly, you know, month to month. Every six to nine months, they need a new prosthetic device because they've outgrown their old one. And back in 2010, uh, someone used a 3D printer and printed a very kind of uh, basic body-powered device. And when I first came to HSU, there was a young child who was born without a limb with congenital limb loss. And well, it was one of the first kind of fun philanthropic projects we did. But we built him an arm that uh, was uniquely um, design which came out of my lab and uh, delivered that to uh, one of the Oregonian um, residents. And immediately putting this arm on, he was able to hold a phone. He started texting his mom emojis. We also got him a little scooter and he was riding a scooter in the hallways and things. So it was very rewarding. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah, I mean he wasn't really able to ride a scooter before. No, that, not right? at all, yeah. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. What about us? Oh. Uh, yeah, I was just wanted to briefly chime in because you know you were talking about how if somebody comes in with a traumatic amputation, you're you're yeah. kind of the the surgeon on call essentially 24/7. I guess any any day of that happens. How else do you include that in your practice? Just what you know, what percentage is uh, is kind of standard? I, I, I would almost say trauma surgery or ICU. How much time is you doing research in the lab and uh, and doing those operations, or is it just really hard to quantify because it just depends on the demand. Yeah, usually I'm a full FTE trauma surgeon with emergency general and uh, trauma critical care. And um, often uh, my elective practice will get referrals from all over the country for the TMR portion. And um, I have to tell you, upper extremity loss is uh, incredible technologies that we have to help those. They're not that frequent. 
So um, there's always time when the cases do come up to dedicate to that patient. Um, but we've been averaging about one to two cases um, at least a year um, within OHSU, and then we get the outside referrals as well. Um, the the next question I had about technology is osteo integration, and so this is kind of a you know you you have an actual metal uh, bar out of the bone, so it actually makes it much more natural, makes the prosthetic um, you know fit well. You don't need straps, uh, and that's that's a big advance, and that's something that requires collaboration with orthopedics. I believe yeah. is that right? Yeah, it's kind of fun. We just recently last month had Ricard Brendamark who invented osteo integration. And again, just like at Laszlo said, it's a intramedullary rod that is externalized, um, that's implanted in the bone that allows for the attachment of prosthetic devices. And I'm really excited to say, you know, we brought Ricard out here and we had talks with hand surgery and orthopedic surgery. And again, kind of bringing in advanced technologies and the rehab and all the different knowledge to make sure patients are successful. But we're currently in um, talks about collaborating and bringing osteointegration here to OHSU. And um, an another plug would be Johnny Matheny, who was that first patient that we were talking about earlier that I performed TMR on, and what was the first person in the U.S. to have an upper extremity osteointegration implant as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a big advance. I still understand how it doesn't get infected. But, yeah. Uh, there, you it, know, there are clinical it, it, trials out right now. Yeah, but, um, you know, from Johnny's experience, um, it, he, there's no prophylactic antibiotics. It's just local wound care. And um, the results so far, you know, I think it's all about patient selection and patient education to, to prevent that. But the preliminary results so far have been pretty um, promising. That's great. Um, and so the other, other piece here is that you have all these pieces, right, the TMR, osteointegration, advanced bionic prosthetics. Uh, but if, even if the, a patient had all these tools, they can't just put this on and then start going. Um, they require a lot of therapy and training to get that off the ground. Yeah, I have to tell you, Les, I think you nailed something that um, people can't perform the procedure. And again, again I said it's not um, from the skill set within, you know, plastic surgery and even hand surgery and orthopedic surgery or neurosurgeons. They can perform the procedure. The key to success for the patients really is exactly what you just said, having all the pieces together, having the therapy sessions and that expertise to make sure that they are successful. So in order to have that advanced control that we're talking about where my patient can play the piano, we don't use traditional control, meaning um, when you have a certain muscle group fire, it controls, say, hand open or hand close. We use something called pattern recognition. And what it is is we look at multiple electrodes at the same time, and we're recording the muscle activity. And then I like to call it a, a signature symphony of muscle activity that we can map to certain movements. And that's the way we have more combination. We call these classifications that we can actually have individual finger movement. So if that's the goal is to replace and restore the function of the you know natural human arm, it really does take all that expertise together for the patients to be truly successful. Um, and, we'll, and, uh, and so the other part is that you're waiting for, I think even in the best of circumstances, it's probably months or not years of approvals. And so one of the things we're, we're using now is virtual reality, right? And so there's some virtual reality glasses that are sitting in uh, Albert's office. 
I suspect some of it involves video games. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but part of it is actually using this technology even before they have any, have any of the operations. Oh, right? gosh. Like, like, we have the patients um, come in and at, even before surgery and after surgery um, come and practice these neural reconnection reinforcements before we ever have to spend a dime. We can use these patterns and actually perform either activities of daily living or um, perform certain tasks in a virtual environment. And again, using um, virtual, what I like to call virtual rehab, reinforce those neural connections in a virtual world before we even put the device on. And then this kind of component has been truly the um, reason why we've been so successful. And that's even branching out to other applications, not just amputees, right? Patients with nerve injuries, they can retrain other other segments, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So the, I'm really excited to kind of talk about this portion of it. Um, the lab has kind of gone um, even a, a new direction other than just um, prosthetic devices, but we've been using exactly like Lasso was referring to, this virtual environment for people with brachial plexus injury. Uh, we're thinking about expanding even to stroke that where the neural projections to their, uh, and to their muscles are still present. They're just not strong enough in order to either compensate gravity or actually perform full range of motion, but we can use that muscle activity and translate full range of motions in the virtual world. And not only that, whatever you see in the virtual world, I could potentially extrapolate that information and put it into an exoskeleton that could even act as an assist device. And I'm, I'm really happy to say we're currently working on a prototype for an exoskeleton for an individual that had a brachial plexus injury that will give him full shoulder, elbow, wrist, and hand movement. That's incredible. Um, the one thing about software engineers is that they do sometimes speak a different language. <laughs> and I think it's not really them speaking a different language. It's that we sometimes ask them to do what's impossible. Yeah. And uh, has that been a struggle in terms of uh, that collaborations with, with software engineers? I have to tell you, um, I still have an appointment with the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. And... All of the software and everything that we've worked on for uh, the last, like, over decade now, it's all open source. And uh, we were talking about the sort of about the silos and everything. Yeah. And, and my personal opinion is in order for anything to advance, that we need to be open. Have everyone who is willing and wants to collaborate, allow them to collaborate and really push the technology forward. So a lot of the control that we're using, we're still using all of the advanced control systems that was used to develop this $250 million arm with our 3D printed arm that we're building for a couple hundred dollars. So it's, it's been, it's an incredible time we live in really, like accessibility to software, accessibility to information, those little control boards, um, shoot, you can buy them for about $50. Now we're using a $50 Raspberry Pi to control these advanced EMG sensors and things. Um, and it, we could do it absolutely at, at the low budget cost. So it's so much more accessible than, than 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, maybe you know, like the, the, the final question here is that maybe looking back 20 years ago, uh, there's probably a, a young Dr. Chi right now. What advice would you give you know, a young surgeon interested in, in going into a novel field? You know, it's just to keep an open mind, um, really choose the right mentors. I have to tell you, if it weren't for all those people that we met, there's just so many to even list off. If it weren't for those individuals um, in my life that were supportive and encouraged me, it would have been very easy to get discouraged and not 
pursue this is to, you know, wherever you end up, um, whether that be training or whatever specialty, and especially wherever you end up um, working either in academia or wherever you choose, is to really research that well and make sure that you're really supported. And I, I really want to say, too, um, coming here to OHSU has been one of the highlights of my life. I, I feel so supported from the, my division chief, Mark Schreiber, our chairman, uh, Dr. Azaro, and I, I love all my partners now that allows me to be as successful as I am. That includes you too, Lasso. Well, well, thank you. <laughs> um, and so, um, well, thank you everybody for joining us. I'd really like to thank Dr. Chi so much for his time. Uh, I think that was, that was great, really insightful, and just really incredible work. And uh, on behalf of the Career Development Committee, uh, thank you for joining us. And certainly check out our other career casts online. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.